Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz pianist and composer Mark Copeland. He spent his childhood in Philadelphia. He took piano lessons at 7, stopped at 10 when his public school offered the option of a saxophone. And it was in the 1960s that he learned from the great Michael Brecker. In 1966, he moved on to New York City, then went on to Baltimore and Washington, D.C. in that area as a jazz pianist, and then came back home to New York in the mid-1980s. He's kind of went all over the place for a while, but the keys are his home, and he's got many tales to share. So please, Dig this interview, my friends. Hey, thank you for taking some time out. It's an honor to speak with you. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm going to go ahead and start off here. Give me an idea, just kind of in a snapshot, of what's been going on with you lately. Well, a bunch. I guess uh, I'm continuing on with uh, playing with Gary Peacock's trio and John Abercrombie's quartet. And in that regard, you know, playing concerts and recording for ECM, two albums with each of the bands. And... Uh, I've I've gone and started my own label, the first release. We got it out early this year, and it's called Zenith. It's with uh, Joey Barron, Drew Gress, and the trumpet player Ralph Alessi. And uh, we've got a, a release from the young pianist Bobby Avey, who plays with Dave Liebman. He's terrific, and we've got a quartet thing by him. And then I just finished a solo recording, which we'll put out early next year. So... With all that and being on the road, it's been pretty pretty intense. Yeah, sounds like it. So talk to me about Zenith, your latest album. How do you feel about this? I'm very happy with it and the way it came out. Everybody you know, everybody brought their A game to the studio. You know, Joey and, and I work with both John's band and Gary's trio and Joe and Drew and I are in John's band, so it's a very you know, it's a rhythm section that's used to each other and you know, Ralph's just terrific. He's got fabulous ears. And, uh, you know, there's, I guess there's a bunch of stuff on the album I like, but I think in a way my favorite is this this thing we did where we just started playing free. And we used, we used the whole thing. It's like a, I don't have the album in front of me, but it's it's 10 or 12 minutes, you know, and, and I sort of named two or three parts of it to make a little sweet, but it's we just played it all at once, you know. And um, it really came out great because everybody listens. Yeah, right on. Well, let me go back in your life a little bit to your childhood in the city of Coltrane and ask how you got so interested not only in music but in jazz. You know, I was in one of these very primitive, not very good teenage rock bands and the guitar player called me up. He said, you know, I had a date to go to Haverford College to see this guy Dave Brubeck tonight. You want to come? I said, sure. I had no idea who he was or what I was going to hear. And I guess I was 16, maybe, maybe 17. And I just flipped. You know, I loved Paul Desmond. I was a saxophonist, alto saxophonist at the time. That was the start of it. And the other piece of it is uh, I went to high school with Michael Brecker, he was a year behind me, so we were in the same, you know, stage band and all that. I began playing with him and some some other musicians whom one of his teachers knew uh, from from the city in Philly, and, uh, and it's, you know, my ears just opened up. I started listening to Cannonball and Miles and everybody else. So, so the Brubeck 
thing didn't last too long, but it was a it was a way in. And I I still love I still love Paul Desmond. So was that transformative enough for you to know that you wanted to pursue a career in music? Actually, it was kind of the opposite because Michael was, you know, a natural. He came from a musical family. His dad played piano. His brother, of course, was Randy, was already playing. You know, he was all over the horn. And I just figured, okay, this is what a real musician is like because, you know, Randy's been successful and Mike's obviously on his way and I just don't have it. Um, and I pretty much believed that until I was 18 and I went off to uh, college in New York. And after a couple of referrals, I got sent to Lenny Tristano for lessons. I had no idea who he was. And uh, I was not studying with piano with him. I was studying improvisation using the saxophone. And, you know, I stayed with him a couple years, and we, we had some differences. I liked Coltrane. He did not. Uh, but the guy taught me to hear. And he really put me through a very rigorous program of ear training, which, you know, a lot of people want to see him. Um, I, I, I would say after about six months, I started to think, you know, maybe I can do this. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. It seems in your life you start out on the piano very early on, go to the sax, and then come back to the piano. Talk to me, kind of sum up your journey through the instrument, so to speak. That was kind of easy. I mean, you know, I was playing piano as a little kid, but then I started playing saxophone in the bands in school and whatnot, and then having seen Desmond play, you know, I was playing mostly saxophone at that point. That was kind of the way to go. And then a couple things happened. First of all, I was working with Chico Hamilton's band, and John Abercrombie joined the band. And that was just like, uh, how can I explain it? I was stunned, because all of a sudden, here was this musician who played great, didn't really care about anything but music and making good music. He was understated and not flashy. In other words, he embodied everything that I think today, you know, a good art and a good artist should be about. And I was looking inside myself thinking, I'm not like that at all. And, you know, I felt very a little depressed and a little inadequate. John and I became very close as we worked with Chico for a couple of years. And, of course, the reason I was feeling so bad was was because I really did that have, have that inside me, but I just wasn't aware how to get in touch with it. And towards the end of 1973, I guess, I pretty much stopped playing the horn entirely, and I was just writing on piano all day, every day. And at the end of a, a few weeks or months, I had some tunes that were very special to me. I, I I didn't know whether they would work in jazz. They were sort of more like Joni Mitchellish, but a little harmonically deeper than that, but but not much. Same kind of vibe. And I just kind of made the decision, these tunes feel very important to me, and where it's going harmonically is important to me. And the only way I can really get to that is piano, even though I'm not... You know, I have some knowledge of the instrument from when I was younger, but I'm not really a pianist, but I'm just going to have to go for it because nothing else feels right. And the minute I decided that, 
that Christmas I went out. I was either seven, I guess it was 72, 73. I went out and I took $50, $60 out of the bank and I bought, went down to Sam Goody's and I bought every Joni Mitchell record I could find. And this was after listening to nothing but, you know, Coltrane and real hard stuff for Sonny Rollins and so forth. All great stuff, you know. And yeah. all of a sudden I was listening to this romantic, you know, woman folk pop singer. And it made total sense to me, even though it seemed very strange to all my peers. And I just went with that. And uh, it it sort of worked out that that's where I needed to be. And the minute I made that transition, it's amazing. I, I felt I felt like I'd had been walking around in a pair of shoes my whole life. They were pinching me and were too tight. Somebody finally bought me a good pair of shoes. Um, I felt comfortable. I felt like I could go after what I was hearing. And, you know, the rest was just, I kind of knew where I wanted to go. And the rest was just, working out a way to get there. And that's been the last, I don't know, let me count, <laughs> 45 years, I guess. Right on. So let me ask you this. The first time you go to New York in 66, what? how did that time in New York prepare you for the second time that you went back to New York? Um. Well, I knew what to expect. And I, I think I was... What's the right word? I, I was a little older and a little wiser, and I knew what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. You know, the first time it was like, you know, I want to be the fastest saxophone player alive, and I want to, you know, get real famous and all that, which was all wrong. And the second time it was like, you know, I want to come back and I want to play some music and see if I can take it somewhere. Um because, you know, I was doing that in Washington and Baltimore where I was living, but it was a very limited scene. And it was it was hard to develop past a certain point without anything to bounce off of. And, you know, I came back, I, 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 I fell in with a completely different bunch of people, uh, players. And um, then eventually, as time wore on, I would find myself in bands and on gigs with 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 my old friends, you know, with Mike, with Dave Liebman, uh whomever. And to me it was it was it was very sweet. It was sort of like getting to do it all over again a second time, but to do it in a way that really made sense to me. And uh I was very grateful for the opportunity. And, you know, at that time you were playing with some heavy hitters, you know, Herbie Mann, Joe Lovano, um, Jane Ira Bloom. What did you learn from them about not only music, but when you're around someone like that by osmosis, you have to learn a lot about life. What did you learn? Well, you know, I learned something from everybody, whether it's somebody I'm working for or somebody who's working for or with me. Um, but I think the the... The the biggest thing I learned, uh, I would say there, there's, there's two things. One was just being in a rhythm section, because when you're in a rhythm section, it's really, you're in the trenches. You're really part of a team, and you have to listen and hook up with the other guys if you really want to make some music that feels good, and that's what I wanted to do. So 
uh, I was, and I knew about that from from all the playing I'd done in Washington. But coming to New York and doing it at, at that level was definitely great. the The other thing I would say I learned from uh, my old boss James Moody, and Moody, he he treated me wonderfully. You know, he he ended up being a godfather to my son and all that. And I I remember him telling me, he said, Mark, he said, you know, I can't pay you any more than the other guys, but I can do everything I can because, you know, he was basically having me direct the band musically. He said, I'll do anything else I can to make things right for you. And and he did. He he would do all kind of little special things for me. And we got very tight. But the, but the thing he really impressed upon me was, uh, you know, treat treat the other musicians around you the way you would want to be treated, which sounds very simple, but... Sometimes people forget, and yeah. that was that was that was a really great lesson. Moody was a lovely guy, and uh, you know he's he's missed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and there's been a lot of ventures that you've gotten involved with over your time. But one that's interesting to me is with the Japanese producer. Is it Tokaho Agawa? Is that how you yeah. say? Yeah. Yeah. Now, how did that come into fruition? That seems like a very cool pairing. Well. He was present when I was making a record with Vince Mendoza, a um, very large band. I know Erskine was on it. I think Mark Johnson was on it. I'm trying to remember who else did it. You know, it was one of these very large Vince orchestral things. It's the only thing I ever did with Vince. Um, it was a lot of fun. And Takao was there. And... He and the record company owner came running up to me on a break and said, you sound wonderful, we want to do something with you. I said, fine, fine. And, you know, a year or two later, I thought, why don't, you know, this is before email. I said, why don't I send this guy a fax? So I faxed the record company owner, and I got no response. And, you know, at a later point, some weeks or months later, I thought, wait a minute. Maybe Takao Ogawa is the guy I should get in touch with. So uh, not too much later, I was making a record with Reza Bazi, the guitarist, and Mm -hmm. next door in the studio, Bob Mincer was making a record. And Bob and I got, you know, we knew each other. We got to chatting a little bit. And he said, oh, yeah, Takao's in in town, and he's producing this, this session. I said, man. I said, can I get his number from you? He said, sure. So I called up to Cal and we had a meeting and and uh that's how that whole deal with Savoy got started. Right on. So let me ask you this. Over your career you've been equally comfortable, solo, duo, trio, quartet. How does all of these different facets feed into your musical ed? Um I you know, I love all of it. And the main thing is if I can find a way to to uh keep playing what I hear and keep expanding that uh, regardless of what uh size group I'm playing with and you know I just came back from a two week tour of Europe and duo with with uh, John Abercrombie and we were talking about it cuz we play quartet all the time you know um his band 
And when we do the duo, it's in some ways it's the same, but in some ways it's very different. Uh, the level of interplay is more exposed and more intimate. And you know, they're they're both good. It's it's just there are some things he can do in one setting better than others. So let me ask you this. Over your career up to this point, how do you feel things have gone? You've dedicated your life to jazz. You've made a lot of music in a lot of different settings around the world. How do you feel about everything when you look back? I don't look back. I look forward. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about playing the stuff that's in my head that I haven't gotten out yet. And um, I think the, the solo album that's coming out on my label, Inner Voice Jazz, uh, this probably this February is another step in that direction, and you know I always I, I think of when uh, the composer Bela Bartok was on his deathbed, and he said uh, he said you know it's a shame I have to go because I have so much music inside I'm still hearing, wow. and I, I'm hardly comparing myself to him, but uh, what what I do share is that feeling that there's there's still a lot of stuff I can hear that I'm trying to figure out and play. Yeah. So you had touched on some of your influences over the years. Like when you were with Lenny, you really mentioned John Coltrane. Who have been your jazz heroes throughout your life? Who have you admired quite a bit that's influenced you? Well, you know, I listen to everybody and that's kind of a hard thing to 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 pin down to just a few names but what i can say is as as i mentioned earlier you know john was a big abercrombie was a big influence on me especially early on just the way he carried himself and the way he was dedicated to music and when i first met gary peacock and we started playing together that was it it was like I'd found my long lost brother. You know, we'd go out and and eat and talk about music, and it was like it was like talking to my other half. Um, so that was that was really validating for me. As as far as uh, as a pianist, as I said, Joni Mitchell was a very early influence just from the feel she gets and the fluidity and all that. Even though you know her her art is a little different, but there are some things about it I. Uh, I really was affected by. And then, you know, anybody in the history of jazz who's really worked with harmony in a certain way in terms of keeping it flexible and trying to increase the colors of their harmonic palette um, has been an influence. And I guess in particular we're talking Bill Evans and Herbie Hancock. Uh, And, you know, certainly... I'm well aware of Keith Jarrett, and he's absolutely terrific, you know, one of the very, very few greatest people ever to play the instrument. But Bill and Herbie were sort of more in my wheelhouse, just from the way they do things. Let me ask you this. Why do you love jazz? I'm not sure. I mean, it feels great. (laughs) You know, it feels great. I mean, man, the first time I was standing there at the back of the big hole in Haverford College with my rock guitar player friend... And Paul Desmond started playing. I, I mean, it put me right in the zone. And I had no idea what I was listening to, but I loved it. And it's, you know, once once you get hooked, boy, it's, it's as you well know, I'm sure, it's, it's yeah. kind of hard to stay away from it. Yeah. 
Well, I remember the first time I heard "Kind of Blue," it threw me into an orbit that I can't even describe. It was, uh, it was, it, it was like a drug. It was a serum, you know. There you go. Yeah. And and uh, as corny as it might sound, I'm just trying to stay faithful and true to the music, and and you know, play stuff that really seems musically honest to me as a player, and and try and expand what I'm able to do. And as long as I can keep doing that, I'll keep playing. So over the years, you played for all kinds of people. You, A lot of people have bought your music. Is there a particular fan compliment that you got that you remember very well? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was working in Seattle with, uh, I think, with Gary and with Jerry Grinelli. That's when Gary was living out there. And this young guy came up. You know, there weren't that many people in the club. It was a big, beautiful club. It's now, uh, it's still called Jazz Alley, but it's in a different location than it used to be in Seattle. We were in the old U District location. And this guy came up and he said, are you Mark? I said, yeah. He says, oh, he says, you sound pretty good. I said, well, thanks pretty much. I Very never nice. forgot that. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. That's a great story. Um, so let me ask you this. This is my final question. Everything is going to come funneling down to this one re- revelation of getting to who you are. Everyone has a version of you, your family, your friends, the people that you play for, this guy that that complimented you. But who do you think you are? When you wake up, you go out into the world, Who? what's your perception of who you are? I'm not sure, but it seems to like – feel right when I'm not even thinking about who I am and I'm just trying to relate openly and directly with everything around me. I had, when I was in college, I had a a professor of philosophy named Sam Coleman. I will never forget this guy. He was a short little guy, very bright. I never really researched it, which I could certainly do now with the internet, but you know, he was a great teacher. But the word was that he'd he'd really had a lot of trouble during the McCarthy era, you know, because because they were trying to nail him. And he just wouldn't back down. You know, he was very firm and so forth. Um, he may have even gone to jail. I'm not sure. But he's the nicest, you know, mildest and, and very bright man. And I remember the last class we went to, and he said something about, you know, what's, What's most important to me, he said, is when I can present myself the same way if I'm talking to you, meaning all the students listening to him, or to another philosopher in another country, or the president of the university, if I'm seeing him, you know, because I want to be the same person to everyone, whatever that is, and I don't want to change myself to to try and ingratiate myself with people. I just want to be who I am. And the way he said it, it was so gentle. You know, I think it was the last thing he said, and it's, a, you know, 50 years ago this happened. So I'm paraphrasing him. 50, 60 students in the class, we all stood up and applauded him, standing ovation. Wow. A beautiful man. And... That's the kind of thing I try and 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 do with uh with my playing and and 
you know, I guess I guess the one thing that makes me feel happy is from time to time someone will say to me something like, I was listening to the radio, I had two I heard two bars and I knew that was you. And that makes me feel good. because um, I thought that's what this music was always supposed to be about, was finding your own voice and just saying something new in a way that feels honest. Wow, that's poetry emotion right there. You just ended everything on a high note, for sure. Uh, Mark, thank you for taking some time out. It's been engrossing. I appreciate your uh, stories and, and most most certainly your music. Well, thanks so much for having me, and uh, good luck to you guys out there with the show, and I hope everybody has a good holiday. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Mark for his music, his stories, and all of that time he gave us. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.